Hello and welcome to Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the technical details. We're not your average tech news podcast, we are developers and computer scientists. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host, Douglas Shearer. Hi Ian. So, what have we got today? Uh, a bit of follow-up and then the main topics, we're going to chat about displays and you've put something called the machine in here. I'm not quite sure what machine that is, but I'm sure you'll tell me all about that. Awesome. Uh, so, quick follow-up. Um, we were talking about the silly names of upcoming Intel CPUs two episodes ago, and I noticed earlier last week that it's um, IDF soon. Uh, well, San Francisco IDF. They do a Shenzhen one as well. That's next week at the time of recording. So that's the Intel Developer Conference for our forum, is it? Forum, for anyone who yeah. doesn't know. Yeah. yeah, so they announced all the Skylake parts at it last year, so Kebby Lake seems quite likely this year. And then when I was Googling what was likely this year, I noticed that they're talking about uh, the Intel Optane support in KB Lake. So this is, the, I think they call it 3DX point or something? That was the, the old name. name. The... That was the name before Intel bought it. Okay. Um, but that's exciting because it's basically a thousand times faster than NAND Flash. Okay, that could be good. So yeah, maybe you'll get your nice uh, KB Lake MacBook Pro with two terabytes of super fast flash in it. Well, I now want four terabytes because you can get four terabytes Oh, there is no pleasing some people. <laughs> Samsung SSDs from Amazon that will turn up tomorrow. So, yeah, four terabytes it is now. <laughs> okay. Right. So the first up I wanted to talk about was displays. Um, I think this is a really super interesting kind of uh, tech project, tech topic and something that's worth going into some detail in because they're in everything. Like, I'm staring at a big one now. There's one on my phone. It's somewhere where there's... Uh, quite a lot of innovation. It's somewhere where unusually Apple are lagging behind, which I think is quite interesting. So you say Apple are lagging behind. Now I would say, yes, certainly they don't have external 4K, 5K displays. Their phones don't have as high resolution as some other um, Android products do. But one of the things they have been doing is the really wide colour spaces, especially on the iPad Pros. Right, and I, I assumed... Well, I kind of thought initially, I was like, oh, well, of course Apple put good displays and things. Everyone knows that. I'm staring at a P3 color gamut iMac display here, which is a lovely, enormous display and high resolution and good color. Everyone's read all about the, the new 9.7-inch iPad Pro and how, you know, it, um, it's got the ambient color sensor to adjust its color to match the ambient light to give better color accuracy and all this nonsense, right? So you think, oh, I'm, I'm buying Apple, I'm buying the best displays and they must be using the best the best uh, technology. But I started to look into actually the the numbers and test results and things like that, and it, it's actually maybe not the case. Okay. So I've got an iPhone 6S Plus, and before I had that, I was using a Note 4, which is a, a relatively recent Samsung 1440p OLED screen. Same size, but so higher resolution, 1440p compared to 1080p, and OLED compared to LCD. So... And I really noticed the like the, the iPhone display seems worse, right? Subjectively worse, maybe not objectively worse. Maybe, but uh, yeah, it's not as sharp and it's not as bright and it's you know doesn't have the contrast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So one of the reasons OLEDs sort of got a, a bad name early on was poor color reproduction. They had really good popping colors, but things like pinks and reds were a bit too sort of. I would describe it like overly bright and they bled into other parts of the image. Is that something that's been solved now? Yeah, so I, I thought I'll I'll look up as many tests and specs and things as I can and because the question I wanted to answer was like, how is OLED better than LCD? How much better is it? And this is kind of 
I got started thinking about this with all the rumoured um, iPhone next year as having an OLED screen, etc. Right. So by ne- the next year, you mean the 2017 iPhone at this point? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll publish this episode of the podcast within the year, so uh, hopefully that's still next year. Um, I mean, this. I mean, the phone for next September, yeah, not September yeah. coming up. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I, I assumed all those things you just said, and I thought, actually, I wonder if it is true. I'm, you know, I, I do make claims that I'm a scientist, so I should go and find empirical evidence to support my views. And actually, I discovered relatively, especially at the high end, LCDs are ludiments. Um, basically, um, everything you said is maybe used to be true, but it's certainly not the case now. Um, the LCDs are better in some respects, and by some respects, I mean displaying pure white screens in a more power efficient manner. That, that's okay. that's pretty much it. So, um, just start by um, explaining a few things I've been looking into. So, the first thing I kind of thought was. I've been reading a lot about uh, the OLED TVs these days, yeah. So yep. I thought, um, I thought, okay, at the big size. So if I look at 4K OLED screens, um, how good are they, and how do they compare to uh, what are normally sold as LED screens? But they're actually it's basically LED illuminated LCD screens, right? And there's there's a really good article on uh, let me find it, yeah, on the DisplayMate blog where they. Um, they compare the basically top-end LCD versus OLED TVs. And the OLED is basically better in every single way. Um, it's much faster response time. The black levels are much, much better because you can turn pixels completely off. The viewing angles are much, much better. Um, the power consumption is between 17 and 39% better, depending on you know what picture's on the screen. Uh, the color accuracy is equivalent at the very high end. It's as good. The color gamut is equivalent at the very high end. It's as good. Um, at this big size, the sort of dots per inch and so on is as good. It's you know indistinguishable. So, in sort of color accuracy and color gamut, indistinguishable from LCD, but much much better contrast. Almost in, literally infinitely better because you can display a completely black spot on a, on an OLED screen because you can turn the pixel off entirely rather than having an illuminated part of the screen that you're trying to block the light from, which is how a LCD panel works. Yep. The better viewing angles, better better contrast, lower reflectivity, etc., etc. There's just, just literally no way in which the LCD screen is better. The OLED screen can be made thinner as well with smaller bezels. So for TVs, like the, okay, the advantage the LCD has is it's much cheaper. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe not the high end if you're spending a lot of money on a TV. Still an expensive TV. So are these are these sort of in the range of black to white that plasma wear now that we can't really buy plasma? Oh, they're TVs? they're they're much better than that. Okay, wow. Because uh, plasmas, you get noise in dark areas, right? Just because yep. the way it works. These the dark area on a on the load screen is just dark. It's just off, right? Yeah. Um, so I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. It made me want a massive OLED screen. <laughs> it's interesting that they make them all because they can, and because it makes a big difference. They make them all with a very slight curve on them. Okay. Uh, so like it's about one and a half to two inches curve across a 50 inch screen so that's kind of barely perceptible in terms of the distortion of the image yeah but lots of that's about cutting down on reflections I guess. that's exactly that it cuts the reflections and it increases your viewing angles yeah i've only experienced one curved television and it was 
kind of incredible how unreflective it was and at first I thought it was the surface was matte but then you weren't even getting the sort of faint reflections from like windows or such like there was almost nothing yeah so then then I kind of thought okay that's that's big TVs but the thing about big TVs is the pixels are relatively big right they're not high it's not like high DPI when you that you want in a mobile device so I thought I'd um I'd see like what are what are kind of the limits here in the mobile devices, right? So what's the highest DPI screens you can get? Well, in OLED, uh, the the state-of-the-art in OLED mobile screens, probably the state-of-the-art in OLED screens full stop, is the Galaxy S7, the S7 Edge. Okay. Um, Samsung's newest stuff, newest best panels, just to keep for themselves. And they're 576 DPI. Uh, and, okay, that's a number. How does that compare? Well, the highest DPI uh, iOS device is uh, 6S+. Plus. And that's 400 DPI, four, okay. 401 pedants before you email us. And so, yeah, considerably higher. Um, can you tell the difference, you say? Apple's marketing would say no, but is a, there's a difference between distinguishing individual pixels and perceived quality increase for certain certain types of uh, information. So, like, for example, your eye is more sensitive to color gradients than it is to edges. Yeah. Uh, so having higher higher dpi can give you smoother gradients can give you nicer curves etc etc yeah so for displaying text that's going to be ideal i mean i am ios i think it still doesn't have text aliasing turned on so it actually relies on there being physical picture pixels in the right positions to alias the text that way yeah we could go off on one about sub pixel aliasing on lower dpi screens but um, that's a bit of a for the reader's historical interest uh, topic nowadays uh, but LCDs can go higher, higher DPI, right? So the the current highest DPI screen you can buy, uh, I think full stop as far as I'm aware. If anyone knows of any weird prototypes, then do let me know. Uh, the Sony Z5 Premium has got a 2160p, so that's a 4K screen in, I think, 5.5 inches, so it's 801 DPI. Okay, that's quite incredible. Why would you want this? As well as just making things look a bit nicer, it's generally agreed that above 600 DPI for typical viewing distances, you're not making a huge improvement. I mean, 600-odd DPI's typical print resolution. Uh, but for VR applications, then there is potentially a big benefit because then you're reducing the size of the gaps between the pixels, which is uh, quite noticeable as what's known as a screen door effect. Um, again, you've still not tried VR, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah. it's, it's a hard thing to explain as well. If you've, um, if you've never seen it, you'll hear people talk about screen door, but it's exactly that. It's like looking through a screen door. So in, in that case, it's not so much about having more pixels, it's about having fewer not pixels, like fewer or smaller gaps between the pixels so the image looks more continuous and more real. Yeah, that's it. But then even then for VR applications, OLED destroys LCD because the response time is, is much, much quicker and you can get higher contrast and things like that, less ghosting. Do you have numbers for the response time comparison? Uh, I do, not to hand. I'll put a link in the, uh, for, okay. the show, for the show notes. There's some... Um, there's some interesting measurements. That I think the DisplayMate thing is a is a good example. It's basically they can't. Uh, I think I can't remember how they were measuring it, but they were effectively unable to record any blurring or response time issues in in the OLED with their tools, but they could on the LCD. Okay. So yeah, following up the phone thing. So then I kind of thought, well, what's probably the best mobile displays? Well, you know, I can compare and look and see how they compare. So I thought, well, I'll look at the S7s clearly, like the top of the pile on OLED, and the kind of best best of the rest sort of thing i thought i'll look at the um 
9.7 inch iPad Pro uh, because that's kind of Apple's best mobile display at the moment and then I kind of went off on one a slight tangent so you're talking about the wider color gamuts and things like that earlier right yeah and I don't know if you um, noticed all the um, brouhaha for want of a better word <laughs> um, about the uh, OnePlus 3 review so uh, notably Anantec slammed it in their initial review because it wasn't very accurate color and then because it's using a wide color gamut but displaying sRGB color so you're stretching the, the color gamut so effectively oversaturating colors right yeah so it's a bit like the the, the TVs when you go into a whatever type of shop still sells TVs so they're all set to have like a really vibrant popping color but it's maybe not actually what you want when you use it every day so imagine if you can display more shades of red or you know redder reds and greener greens because you've got a wider color gamut right now if your source material isn't actually doesn't actually contain these redder reds and greener greens then if you if you render it to the entire gamut then you're you're just making the colors that aren't aren't there releases you know oversaturated extra colors etc etc that makes sense now i've not heard it explained this way before but this is kind of like the best way to think about what the the ipad pro is doing with its ambient light thing you know how if you look at a screen outside or in different light it kind of wash out the colors yeah right so if you can render to a wider color gamut and oversaturate the colors but then you know that the ambient light is going to wash out the colors a bit then you can correct for that yeah so if you this is a big advantage of having a wide color gamut you can you can over distort the colors because you know that the ambient light is then going to make them look look correct so this lets you uh, produce a nicer display in more situations that makes sense yep okay so a little aside there where i kind of went off on one to say you know what is it? so that's basically why you might want a wider color gamut in a mobile device even if you're not doing photo work or film work in these deep color spaces yeah because it makes your normal color look better in more situations yeah i mean that's certainly something that's always been a problem with smartphones you take them outside and they're if it's sunny they're pretty much useless you're covering up with your hand yeah so that's partly brightness and contrast but it's also also this color thing right you can yeah. keep the colors correct so anyway, so I'm comparing the S7 against the 9.7 inch. And so the S7 is brighter. Um, it's max peak brightness. It can, it can actually go nearly twice as bright as the Pro. Um, although that's because OLEDs can dynamically adjust their brightness and make some pixels brighter than others and so on. So its peak brightness isn't really representative. But in average conditions, displaying average content on the screen, they're as bright as each other. There's There's... You know, that's either tied or a win to the S7, depending on your point of view, yeah? Yeah. They're both as accurate across the sRGB color gamut. The The Pro has P3, the P3 gamut. Um, the S7 isn't advertised as such, but as, you know, as, as those OLED TVs I was discussing earlier, both of them have the P3 gamut, so it's certainly possible with the technology. Okay. I mean, that's just a case of sort of certifying it and saying, yeah, I'll definitely give you this. So in terms of how reflective the screens are, the screen itself on the iPad is less reflective. It's about half as reflective as the S7. So it's kind of winning there. But then that's almost totally wiped out as an advantage by the fact that the S7 absolutely destroys the Pro on contrast. Because again, you've got effectively infinite contrast when you can turn a pixel completely off Yeah. Um, in terms of measuring it. And also the viewing angles in terms of how much the brightness decreases when you're off axis, the viewing angles are about a third better on the, oh, wow. on the S7. Um, so you know it's okay it's a bit more reflective but it goes way brighter it's way more contrast and the viewing angles are way better uh, and then power is a bit of a trickier thing because not many people are in the habit of um, 
pulling apart these mobile devices and uh, putting ammeters on them because it's quite hard to do. Displaymate did a good. Um, they do these good reviews of devices where they perform analysis on measuring how fast battery drains with a constant display and different brightnesses and measuring the luminance so they can correlate the luminance of the display against battery drain and therefore get a power estimate for the display. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the iPad Pro, it's for a sort of white screen, it's 6.3 watts is what the screen's using. And then if you scale, if you take the value for the S7 for a white screen and you scale the values up to have the same area as an iPad Pro screen, which I, I don't know if that's correct. I don't know if it's a linear scaling with screen size for OLED screens. I'd imagine it would because each pixel is individually lit. So I see no reason it wouldn't be. If anyone knows otherwise, do write to us at wrong on the internet, pinkoutpodcast.com. But the S7 scaled is 4.8 watts. So it's, you know, OLED, much better power consumption as well. So what about the case where you were saying earlier when you display... That was an all-white screen you were talking about. Yeah, that's the worst case. So in the worst case for the OLED, the OLED still beats the LCD. Okay, and then the best case would be a black screen because then all the pixels are just turned Nothing, off. Nothing, yeah. yeah. Um, the, aver- the average... What the average screen level is varies depends on the type of content. Like it's it's much lower for typical film content than it is for typical web browsing because a lot of web pages have a lot of white on them. Uh, but there is effectively no doubt that you get better power consumption on an OLED screen. You get better contrast. It can be brighter. Uh, they they can't be as high resolution, but current iOS devices are lower resolution than than the OLED screens anyway. So at this at this point, you're kind of thinking, why on earth are Apple still messing around with LCD screens? That was the conclusion I came to. Um, yeah. And I kind of wonder if it's about sourcing enough of them, because as far as I'm aware, only LG and Samsung actually make the things. They're obviously a massive competitive advantage for Samsung, so maybe maybe they don't want to sell them, or not at a price Apple's prepared to pay. Yeah. Uh, maybe they can't make enough of them. Could be that. You say competitive advantage, but I mean, how many consumers are going out and... You know, looking at this, and I mean, obviously they can look at the two displays side by side. They might say, "Oh, the Samsung looks really good. I want that one." But it doesn't seem like a sort of killer feature. I don't know. I mean, if people go in the shop and they're like, "I want a phone with a big screen," okay, we got this one and this one. Oh, that screen looks good, and I wanted a good screen. There we go. Yeah. Um, so maybe, I mean, even not Android versus iOS. Maybe if you're just shopping with an Android, if you're just saying, "Do I buy a Samsung or a Sony?" The Samsung's got a better looking screen, and you know that sells them phones. Yeah, when you say it that way, I suppose it probably would make sense. You'd look at the sort of quality of the hardware and such like, and the screen quality would definitely be quite a noticeable factor for you know almost anyone. Yeah, and so I said LG make them as well, but uh, I don't know of any mobile LG OLED screens. So if anyone does, again, let us know. But I think it's just Samsung making them into mo- sort of mobile sizes and DPIs. So okay. that, that, that might be it, but... Um, it's just interesting because they do seem much better. I mean, like this was my um, subjective opinion. Just just using the devices, I I missed the screen on the Note Four going to a six S Plus, and my six S Plus is in theory like a model that's a year newer, but the screen seemed worse. You know, it seems you don't expect to be having a worse thing when you buy an Apple product, right? Yeah. So, is there any notebooks with OLEDs? I guess Sony have done it because Sony went through a stage of putting OLEDs in everything. I remember they were they had like a when they first had them, the first OLED TV was like a little tiny, like 17-inch thing. Yep, yep, like, like 970 pixels by 500 pixels in 2010. Yeah, and it was like three or four thousand pounds. Like, it was absurdly expensive. Mostly a proof of concept there. Did they get to notebooks, though? 
Um, yeah, so they are. So the newest um, Alienware 13-inch from Dell has got no LED screen in it. Unfortunately, not available in the UK yet because I've been kind of eyeing up one of these as a New York machine. Yep. Um, and again, everyone says the screen on that is phenomenal, uh, especially on you know mobile devices having the high contrast, high brightness is, is you know quite worthwhile as, as well as the potential power savings. And I also kind of thought, well, if you don't use OLED, what other options are there, right? Because it's not just OLED or LCD. So you, um, I forgot what we call them. They've got a really funny name, but it's the people think of them as color e-ink. So you've got the Qualcomm have the Mirasol displays. Yeah, I've I've seen the papers on these or the white papers. Yeah, I've seen one in the person about oh, five years ago now, and it was the colors were a little washed out, but it's it's not it's not actually e-ink. But then when I was Googling up on this, I found some uh, reports that Apple bought uh, Qualcomm, Qualcomm's uh, Mirasol lab in Taiwan. iMod displays, that's what they're called. It's Inframerectrics something, something, something displays. Um, but yeah, I, it, I read that uh, Apple have actually bought their lab um, at the end of last year. Yeah, that that's quite interesting because we're talking about OLEDs becoming the best display now when... You know, five years ago, maybe even a bit less than that, we were talking about OLEDs being, ah, it's good, but it's not that good. You know, so certainly things can move on. So if Colour E-Ink maybe didn't look amazing a year or two years ago, it could be on by leaps and bounds now. So the the big advantage this would have, if anyone isn't familiar with it, is the reflective displays, so they don't rely on emitting light. So it's like... um. When you read a bit of when you look at a bit of paper or something, it's reflecting light back at you. They work they work like that. So in theory, you can have a display that's more like something printed on paper rather than requiring a light. So you save power. It's much more visible in sunlight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And did they share the properties with sort of black and white e-ink, where you turn a section of the screen on if you don't have to refresh it or modify it? There's no power being consumed there. I believe so, but I can't remember the exact details. So I kind of followed this up with I was wondering what sort of resolutions it hit, and in the most recent information I found was in the middle of 2013, they were showing off 1440p Mirasol displays. Okay, so getting there. Oh, yeah, I mean, definitely getting there. I'm not sure what sort of size that was. But that's interesting to find that Apple bought it. I mean, the obvious use for that would be the Apple Watch, because there the power savings are hugely attractive, as are the uh, visible in all light conditions. Yeah, there was also that rumour this year that the new MacBook Pros were going to have a a strip that would probably be some sort of e-ink that would replace the F keys. This sounds like an application for that sort of thing as well. Yeah, potentially. I mean, So basically, after all this research, um, come on, Apple, where's my OLED iPhone? That's that's what I want. And I, and while you're at it, I'll have a, a big OLED iPad Pro as well, 12.9-inch one, because then lower power consumption, you can take away some of that battery and make it lighter weight, you know? Or make it last longer. No, I want it lighter weight. That's the, the big problem with the big iPad Pro is it just it's a bit heavy when you're reading with it. Yeah, so that's about all I had to say on displays. It's certainly quite a nice overview of displays. Uh, I'd be very interested if anyone's got anything to add or anything they'd like us to research further. Yeah, I'll dump all the links in the show notes and then uh, when you're putting them together, you might want to have a look at some of them because there's tables and tables of information in these DisplayMate blog posts that you can kind of uh, pour over and uh, you might have some follow-up for, for us next time. So I guess moving on, what is this machine? What's it for? Okay, so the machine is, it's an announcement and some experimenting by HP. That's about the best they can describe it as. Now, they would say they have a working prototype of it now, but I think they've maybe got one of them, so it's it's unclear. So in, I think, 2014, HP announced they were going to bring a new architecture to high-performance computing. 
Now, the current way that most high-performance computing works, and I mean clusters and supercomputers and that sort of thing, is that you have a whole bunch of individual nodes, and when they want to share data, they do it over a traditional network. There's no... Sh- well, you get the crazy interconnects and, the, and that HPC stuff. Right, So, that, but, but that's just another form of network. Um, you know, Have you seen the... The, oh, I've forgotten which ones it was. It the Big Origins, the Big Sun servers that were used for high performance computing a while back. That they had um, interconnects. I think were direct bus to bus connections between the CPUs. Yeah, so I guess that's the kind of thing you get in some of the the craze as well. But have, um, have you seen the cables for the Sun? The connectors on the cables in particular, because I might need to try and dig these out because they're totally mental. Because imagine you need lots and lots of tiny connectors, right? And you want a secure connection. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine. If you made Velcro out of gold and glass, that's what the connectors are like. It's like a glass plate with lots of little hook, gold hooks on one side and lots of little loops on another gas plate, and then they kind of push together, and it's like gold, vel- gold and glass Velcro. It's totally insane. Oh, that's amazing! So this this discussion we're having here is actually in one of the links I'll put in the show notes. That is exactly this sort of discussion in the comments about how different this HP architecture actually is and whether on a sliding scale of current von Neumann architecture with networking to bus interconnects, where does the HP the machine sit? Um, so definitely this discussion's already out there. And I'd agree, some of it looks like it's already been done and as we'll get onto in a second, HP kind of wiped out the most interesting part of the machine last year. So the original announcement was it was going to be a single heterogeneous heterogeneous <laughs> bank of memory, and it was going to be memristors, which are like the saviour of all things computing. It's um, non-volatile memory, is the is the way I would define it. So you can use it like. RAM, but when you turn the power off, everything's still there. Okay, so what's the advantages for that in this? So I think the advantages for in this, for using it, was effectively you wouldn't have to have, say, SSDs as your storage. You wouldn't. You'd have the full speed of RAM, but without the volatility of it. Okay, right, that makes sense. So and they were going to use um, photonics to connect to this memory. So last year, they announced they couldn't get the yields on memristors that they wanted. I think they first started fabbing memristors in 2008 or 2010, experimentally at least. But last year, they decided, no, we can't we can't make enough of them to actually make this a product and ship it to people. So they ditched the memristors part. So we're now just down to regular old memory, but they've kept photonics. Okay. Current compute nodes in most clusters, you can... Well, not even current, because the numbers here are a bit silly. So you, the most you can address on a 64-bit processor with a 48-bit address width is 256 terabytes. An absurdly big number, but for some compute projects, you just need more than that. Um, bioinformatics or... Big sim stuff, right? Any any big fluid sim stuff is really really pushes, yeah. pushes this sort of thing. So, so sometimes you do need more RAM than that, and up until now, the only option was to have lots of nodes with large amounts of memory connected by network. So HP, instead of doing this sort of network thing, there is a shared shared bank of memory and a shared address space. Now, I'll describe how this is made up physically, and then how it actually works. So there's um, 
five U enclosures, um, and each one has 32 terabytes of main memory. Now that's made up of a storage part and a compute part. The storage part is four banks of one terabyte of memory, and there's eight of those in each enclosure. So that's where you get your 32 terabytes. Each compute node of which there is all, or so each compute part of the node of which there is eight of them is a 64-bit ARM system on a chip. 256 gigabyte of purely local RAM, which is just effectively like a cache for the processor. And then there's a FPGA that implements the memory interconnect. HP called this Next Generation Memory Interconnect, NGMI. Um, And that's that's the the photonics, you know. Um, And any compute node can access the memory of any other or on any any other node of the system without interfacing with the system on a chip that might be on the other node Ah, okay right so you're not having to ask other computers questions you're just you're addressing the memory directly now the fpga part's interesting someone asked if that was part of the, the, the someone asked if that was part of the design and it turns out they're just using fpgas until they get the design down and then they'll start using asics like the software for that must be pretty crazy. So they're using the main project is actually using uh, GNU Linux, and there's lots of sort of interesting things about this. Like there's no atom atomicity um, guaranteed by the system. Just now they're having to do that all in software. There is talk about firewalling parts of memory using the um, the memory interconnect itself, so doing that in hardware. But just now there's none of that, so all of that has to be managed in software. So have they actually managed to run anything on this? Yeah, so they actually have a working Linux kernel and working applications that run on top of this. Okay. Um, They've got a project page. You can see all the stuff. They've even talked about they're not planning to make a kernel available for this. The idea is that it's a general architecture that other people can perhaps build and use and certainly um, they encourage other people to use it. I think they made a... A comment saying if a any if a Redmond-based operating system <laughs> vendor wanted to produce something for this, they could you know run their software on this architecture. It's meant to be sort of generalized. Okay. Now, the, once you've got one of those eight using use of rack space, uh, the enclosure, you can put ten of them in a rack, so that gives you thirty-two terabytes. Sorry, three hundred and twenty terabytes in a rack. And then you can put multiple racks on the same interconnect, and that gives you up to 32 zettabytes, which, if I'm right, is a million of the nodes. That's not going to be cheap, is it? Uh, No, I don't think any of this is going to be cheap. But uh, that comes down to how popular this becomes. If this becomes the standard way to do this sort of computing, or the ideas in this become standards, it might well become cheaper down the line. So what's it good for? Right. I mean, what is what are the big advantages of this? It's hard to tell. They haven't really got much in applications. Like you were saying, if they've got anything running on this, they don't seem to have anything running on it that isn't just purely experimental. They haven't taken like one of the big database benchmarks. Um, I forget the name of the the big database benchmark. Yeah, I can say it seems like a. Is it suitable for large in memory database stuff or? Yeah, it seems like it would be like great for that. But the, there's there's nothing out there for it. I think it's it's such an it's in such that. It's in such early stages of development that they haven't even got around to doing that yet. You know, they've perhaps got some theoretical work that shows that this is definitely going to be faster for a whole bunch of things, but there's nothing to show that yet. I mean, it's not even it's not a product you can buy. They've talked about maybe having a purchasable version available next year, but 
I mean, who's going to buy one of these apart from maybe universities? I think it is aimed at what is currently the sort of mainframe and large cluster um, market, you know. So, yeah, a university. Okay, so thinking about more crazy computers, this just reminded me of... So I've, I've just been doing a bit of Googling to see if I can find those crazy glass and gold interconnects that I remember seeing, but I can't find anything from a quick Google, but it's off quite an old machine, so it might be, you know, a bit a bit beyond the casual Googling. But... Uh, that reminded me of where I saw it, and it's uh, Jim Austin, one of the professors at York University, runs a, or owns a kind of a collection of old supercomputers and mini computers and things. Uh, has his own computer museum, basically. I've pasted a link in the show notes there, computermuseum.org.uk, and I had the, uh, uh, I guess, privilege is the right word, of um, showing some of the kit in it off to some students one year at York University, and he's got some fascinating stuff there. Like, if you just kind of click through, it's all kinds of crazy stuff from, like, He's got create bits of craze. Um, yeah, he seems to have a whole room that's full of what appear to be refrigerators, but I guess they're actually computers. Yeah, there's like a blue jean there. There's there's the best named computer ever, which is the Mega Node. <laughs> which is um, it's a uh, 250 transputers, so that's like um, you know hypercube connected, very interconnected CPUs. It's again um, a very very odd thing. Indeed, you know it's it's a very it's a, not a standard computer architecture there. Yeah. Um, also, totally. If I was an evil villain, I would have a, I would have a, a mega node. That would be the name of my computer. Clearly. I always wanted a cray, one of the ones with the. Um, it's got a seat around it. Is it? You know the they had crays that were cooled by uh, artificial blood plasma. Oh wow! Yeah, just for, for some reason that was a good idea. I don't think it was just what they had lying around, but they submerged the entire things, and it is crazy. Yeah, so it's quite it's quite interesting. I mean, the the machine seems like something very novel and i guess the piece that myself and other people were excited about was the memristor part um whereas now it appears to be a new way of looking at a mainframe or a a cluster and there is lots of strange things if you go look, look for them in this market where people are spending hundreds of thousands of pounds or dollars on a machine there's all sorts of crazy things going on because the companies can afford to spend the research dollars coming up with crazy things rather than taking something off the shelf and just making a bigger version yeah so it'll be interesting to see see where that goes in future if anyone else has got uh, any follow-up on crazy computing architecture or stuff they're familiar with or if anyone remembers if i'm just having a, a wonderful dream about gold and uh, glass interconnects then uh, get in touch we'd love to get your feedback you can uh, tweet us or use a hashtag aspin aspin count uh, for longer feedback, if you need to, you know, send, send us photos of your crazy computers, then you can email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. So, once again, thanks for listening. Show notes are online at pincountpodcast.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the underscore accidental. You can find Doug at Douglas F. Shearer. Uh, the show is at at pincountpodcast. Bye for now. I think I think one of these episodes you're going to get through wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com without fluffing it. <laughs> it's just quite a lot of words. <laughs> you did it right really early on in the episode as well. I know. Um, I tried to say it quickly. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work saying it quickly. You've got to enunciate it properly. Um, yeah, yeah, I do I, that as well. I've even speaking to people in person, like telling them about it. It's like pincountpodcast. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, you definitely need a pop filter for saying it or be very careful with your microphone technique, don't you? Yeah, I need to make sure I'm quite far away from So it. I've chucked this in the notes as well, just in the after show, but what are you on about microwaves? Okay, so like one of these things like... 
Although, actually, this is going to be quite a long episode. We're going to keep going. Hey, we may as well. Let's do it. Yeah, a minute or two in this is fine. Um, one of the things that greatly annoys me is an interface design and bad interface design is microwaves. I, I kind of do think I know what you're going into here because when I was buying your microwave in our current house, the only requirement was based around its interface. Yeah, so mo- like lots of modern microwaves and certainly the latter microwaves that my parents had when I was a child were had like a dial or buttons where you could select the time and then options such as defrost. Is it a chicken? Is it, you know, beef? Um, is it soup? How much does it weigh? So suddenly you've gone from, I need to put this on for two minutes and I used two minutes last time and I know two minutes works for heating up this half cold cup of tea, although never microwave cups of tea. Um, you don't. You need to remember all this other stuff. You need to go and get a set of scales and find out how much your cup of tea weighs and then put it in and put it on the cup of tea set and then decide whether you want 50% or 100% power. <laughs> I don't want any of that. I want a dial that I turn to two minutes. Oh, no, you don't want a dial. And oh, the, di- the dial's the best interface. Like, So even if you just make it buttons to select the time, that's just a pain. Like the nice physical no, feel of no. a dial. Oh, see, I disagree here, right? Because the thing about the dials and most microwaves, right, is they're crap. They're like they're really imprecise. It's like what what time have I set this to do? I don't know. There's so much slack in the dial. I've set it somewhere between two and five minutes. And at two minutes my porridge will be cold. At three minutes my porridge will be perfect. And at four minutes there'll be a small thermonuclear explosion that takes out half of the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to just go put the porridge in, press the minute button three times, press go. I've got porridge, perfect, right? That's that was my requirement. I just wanted a button I could press a few times, you know, like a minute button, a ten second button and and like a go button. That's all I care about. Yeah, okay. I mean, I can see the argument for that. I think I just liked the sort of touchy-feeliness of the dial. And I, I, I know what you mean about cheap dials. You know? Okay, so I've just pasted a link in the show notes there. Are you familiar with knobfield.tumblr.com? <laughs> no. <laughs> Which is not not a Tumblr porn site. <laughs> you, you don't know Knobfield? Okay, it, must be the, it must be the only non-Tumblr porn site. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it's... Basically, this guy reviews knobs. And that's, that's, that's what it is. He's just got loads of videos of him turning dials on things and going like, mmm. Yeah, see, I mean, my... It's amazing um, anyway. You should totally browse this. My thing. experience of good knob feel is like high-end audio equipment. You yes, know, there's you a lot of that on this blog. Yeah, you got like vo- like a volume dial. It's sort of... It feels like it's sort of running in syrup or like something quite viscous. You know, it's it's hard to describe good knob feel. But if we could get a microwave that's like that, that would be awesome. Put, put this link in the show notes, it's great. But yeah, talking of a microwave with good, good knob feel, the, the microwave I had when I was a student, um, which was like, it's the scariest microwave I've ever used. Um, like the running joke was someone had uh, got it secondhand off a Soviet nuclear submarine. <laughs> it was like, for a start, it was enormous. It's like the biggest microwave I've ever seen. It was about the size of an oven. And it only had one power setting, which was like, 110% captain, if you've seen <laughs> Reddick before. And, um, I it, am a Russian submarine yeah, captain. Yeah, basically, it had one dial, right? And the the thing about this dial is it wasn't a mushy dial because it like clicked every few degrees as you turned it. It was like an index dial. Okay. Um, and part of this was because it wasn't a digital microwave, right? You know um, those really old school clocks you get which have like a dial for each number that's got the numbers like that's got like zero to nine painted on it yes and you have a row of dials that was its countdown timer thing right so you turned this massive dial which went click 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 and then the like the numbers span round in the time display 
until it got to the one you want, and then it yeah counted down. And then wow. it was like enormous. It seemed to be putting out ridiculous amounts of power. And um, although it was repeatable, right? So if you knew the setting you want, you could get something good. But the scariest thing was, you know how you get those? Um, they're kind of popular for a while, kind of almost pre-smartphone days. You'd get those little like uh, phone stands or whatever that have little LEDs in them that you know light up when they detect the signal from your call and stuff. Oh yeah, I mean this is similar to the Edward Snowden product project that's ongoing just now. Yeah, because they're like a. The signals coming through the air inducing a current in a circuit and flashing an LED. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had one of those that happened to be vaguely near the microwave when I was microwaving something one time, and then it just flashed like crazy. <laughs> it's like, like mm, how well shielded was this? It's like it did seem like a reject for being too unsafe for a Russian nuclear submarine or something. It was like it was ancient, but then it was like quite upsetting when the landlords eventually replaced it because it was like an awesomely reliable microwave. See, what I'm now imagining is some sort of steampunk mi- microwave that has a, uh, you know, what Nixie tubes are. Yeah, it's one step above that. Less cool than okay. that. Imagine mm-hmm. something a bit less cool than that because it's got these clacky number things, and then it's kind of, you know, you can have any color plastic as long as it's beige or brown. <laughs> yeah, seventies yeah, are fantastic for uh, yeah it, household it, appliances. It did look like it was rescued from a nuclear submarine that had a terrible s- sinking accident in a pot of tea. 